We're going to continue our study this morning through the five solas. And so if you're just joining us this week and jumping in and you're wondering what the word sola means, it's a Latin word that means alone or only. And so we've talked about 503 years ago, actually yesterday was the anniversary of the event that started this reformation within the church. 503 years ago, there were some men who, who looked at the state of the church and realized it did not match up with God's word any longer. There were pockets of faithful believers throughout the world, but the one unified church had become corrupt and political and had pulled away from the mission of God. And so through a series of really decades it took uh, to have this reformation or this change and this turn back to a biblical church, five doctrines emerged. We talked about hundreds and maybe even thousands of denominations that have spun out of this. But as we reflect and look back, there are five core truths that these men really pushed and promoted. And so we're looking at these five solas, these five doctrinal statements, these Latin phrases, and we're on week four. So a few weeks ago, we looked at sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our ultimate authority. There may be other authorities in our life, but only scripture has the final say. And we looked at the phrase sola fide, that is faith alone. We are saved based on our faith and our faith alone. Kind of going hand in hand with that, the next sola was sola gratia, which is grace alone. We are saved by faith through grace. Not a work that we do, not some uh, thing that we can earn, but instead salvation through faith and grace. This week we're going to look at solus Christus, that is Christ alone. And we'll go into detail on what that means. Next week, we'll wrap up, wrap up with soli dea gloria. That is, to the glory of God alone. All things we do for the glory of God. But this morning, we're going to continue looking at our solas with this phrase, solus Christus, Christ alone. A lot of the songs we sang this morning pointed to this ultimate truth. And honestly, a lot of the songs we sang this morning, I very much appreciate because they're so rich with theology. You can go back and watch the live stream later. I know that's what you like to do on Sunday afternoon is hear me preach a second time. You can skip that. Go back and listen to the words of the song that we sang this morning. Particularly, I love that song, In Christ Alone. You know, there are some churches who who have requested to sing that song and change the lyrics because they're uncomfortable with some of the theology that's taught in them. Uh, And their request is always denied. I'm very thankful for the Gettys who wrote that. They said, no, we will not let you compromise the word of God in our song. It is so rich that Christ alone brings about salvation. And so our texts this morning are going to be in Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to read the first four verses, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Then we're going to also read Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Really, our text this morning, talking about Christ alone, could be the entire book of Hebrews. Now, I'm not going to read the entire book of Hebrews to you this morning, but if you want to hear a study on the supremacy and the greatness of Jesus Christ, read through the book of Hebrews. It is a beautiful, beautifully written book about how Christ alone is worthy of praise. 
But this morning for now, let's read together the first four verses of the book and then go on to that last chapter, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 as well, and listen for the words about Christ in these passages. Hebrews 1, starting in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. Now listen to this description. Whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power and making purification for sins he sat down at the right uh, at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs these first few verses start off Not with an introduction, I'm the author, and let me tell you a little bit about myself. It jumps right into Christ is superior. He is great and mighty and glorious. And then in that last chapter of Hebrews, chapter 12, or towards the end of the book, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race set before us. Now listen to this description. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The words all throughout the book of Hebrews about the person of Jesus Christ remind us that Christ alone is worthy. When we look at this phrase, Christ alone, there's really one central insight we want to study and look at this morning. It's kind of two-pronged, but I think they really form one cohesive thought. So this two-pronged insight to Christ alone. The first prong is that there is this this exclusive identity to who Jesus is. He is unique and unlike any other. There is no one else in the history of creation or in the history of eternity that is like Jesus. He is exclusively unique. And to go along with that, because he is unique and exclusively different from everything else, the work that he accomplished on the cross is all-sufficient, and he is the only one who can accomplish that work. His identity is tied intimately with the work that he does. So I want to spend some time delving into the identity of Christ and the work of Christ this morning. Who he is and how that affects what he did. And then we'll wrap up our sermon this morning here in a little bit, talking about how that applies directly to our everyday lives. When we think of the exclusivity of Christ, how it's Christ alone and only Christ, this word exclusive or exclusivity is kind of a buzzword, particularly in 2020 or an election year, but really has been in our culture for a long time. To claim you have the exclusive rights to say or do something can oftentimes be, be looked at as divisive, maybe arrogant, 
Sometimes it's frowned upon as if, as if you cannot have exclusivity in anything. I think it's highly hypocritical. Because we ex- accept exclusivity in some things, right? So, for instance, you may be wanting to watch a football game and you realize that CBS has the exclusive rights to that football game. And you're okay with that. You turn your antenna the right direction or turn your satellite on the right channel and you, you watch the exclusive channel that has the game you want to watch. The only time it bothers you is when you don't get that channel and then you're upset. So, for instance, Disney Plus has the exclusive rights to the show The Mandalorian. They just came out with a new episode on Friday. It was really good. If you don't have Disney Plus, guess what? You don't get to watch that TV show. So you might get a little upset, but you understand they have purchased the exclusive rights. And you just kind of accept that. But in other things, we get really offended. When you start to tell people that Jesus Christ alone has the exclusive power to bring salvation, then all of a sudden, you are an evil and wicked person in our culture. How dare you say that Jesus alone? You are discriminating against all other religions and all other belief systems. How can you possibly be so exclusive? Let me give you another illustration that I think most of us are very thankful for exclusivity in. And show the hypocrisy to say that religion can't be exclusive, but other things can be. If you're sitting next to your spouse this morning, I want you to ask yourself a question, maybe even ask them the question, are we in an exclusive relationship? I hope you're giggling because it's an obvious answer and not giggling because, well, this is awkward, Pastor Trey. No, when you enter in to a marriage covenant, it is you and that person and that's it. There is no inclusivity. In a biblical marriage, there is no room for any outside person in your relationship. It is exclusively between the two of you. And it is purposefully non-inclusive. You are leaving the rest of the world out of that relationship. There are some things that we readily accept can be exclusive and exclusivity. But when it comes to Christ alone, there seems to be culturally this pushback. How dare you say that it's only Christ? Tim Keller, and I'm going to reference him a little later on in the message as well, a particular sermon on this was really potent and powerful that that I'd kind of read through in preparation. And he talked about an event where they had um, a, a Christian theologian, an Islam theologian, and a Jewish theologian all sitting down and talking about their various religions uh, to a, a group of college students. And of course, each one of those three theologians said, my religion is the only way to salvation. The Christian, the Muslim, and the Jewish theologian. And after a time of talk and debate, there was a college student who, during the question-answer time, said, it's you people You individuals who are what's wrong with this world. Why can't we just come together and have unity? You cannot believe in those exclusive things. You're the problems we have. And I can't remember which one it was. Maybe it was a Christian theologian. Pointed out the hypocrisy there. That this college student thought she had the exclusive belief system to say you have to believe all religions go to the same place. There's an exclusivity in that statement, isn't there? You have to believe the way I believe. But we have to ask ourselves the question, 
Is Christ alone enough? And is he the only way to salvation? Is Christ exclusive when it comes to salvation? And the book of Hebrews will emphatically say, yes, it is Christ and Christ alone. There is no other way to know God in salvation. The book of Hebrews is different from a lot of the other New Testament books. Most of the New Testament books are epistles or letters written from an author to an audience. The book of Hebrews reads more like a sermon. There is no introduction. There is no, now let me tell you where I'm coming from and what I'm doing. It's just an opening statement. Christ is enough. He is greater than all. It is a sermon to be circulated to the churches at the time and one to be circulated to us today. And like any good speech or sermon, the author of Hebrews begins with a a thesis or a foundation to build the rest of his book on. These first few verses are so important because it is the foundation that the rest of the book is built on. It lays out the identity of who Christ is. And there's two specific identity markers of Christ that the writer of Hebrews wants us to know. The the first is simply this. Jesus is fully God. He is fully God. Jesus is completely and totally God himself. There's no question in the author's mind He's not a God. He is not like God. He is not similar to God. Jesus is God. He makes it very clear in this opening chapter in several ways and in several places. First, he talks about him being the creator of the world in verse 2. It says, through him, through Jesus, also he created the world. Jesus was present with the Father at creation And it says, he was the one through whom everything was made. Jesus was the creator. And in verse 3, we see that Jesus exhibits God's glory. He exhibits glory the way God exhibits glory. It says in verse 3, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus receives the glory that only God is worthy to receive. Jesus is that radiance. Jesus is the one. And then it says he is the exact imprint, not a replica. He's not something separate or different. He is exactly God himself. It's not as if God went and said, I'm going to make Jesus like me. No, Jesus is God. He is exactly what we expect in God. He exhibits all of God's glory. And then reading further down, we read that he himself is eternal. Now, we don't have time to go into all the statements about how Jesus is God in Hebrews, but I want to look at this one more because it's a little further down in chapter 1. Look at me in verse 8. It says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear that Christ will never stop sitting on his throne. He will for all of eternity reign. Eternity future, it is Christ and Christ only. But lest we forget, Christ being the creator of time has existed eternity past as well. He is eternal. Unlike anything else in all of the universe, God alone is eternal. Jesus Christ is fully God. 
And while the author of Hebrews continues to exalt Jesus as being this God, not a God, not like God, but God himself, he also clearly portrays him as fully man. Jesus is fully human. He has flesh and bones and pain. He he understands what it is to taste and hear and touch. He he understands all that we understand as a human being because Jesus is fully man. By the way, he had to be. Why did Jesus come? He came to save sinful human beings. Scripture makes it clear that when an individual sins, the penalty and the payment is death of that individual. A human being must die for human sins. And so to have a sacrifice for sins. It had to be a perfect human being. Christ is that perfect human being. And the author of Hebrews makes this clear all throughout the book. In chapter 7, he talks about how he has an ancestry and a history. He's from this this order of Melchizedek. He comes from somewhere. He's not just out of the blue. And in that chapter, it talks about him having no genealogy. He's eternally, eternity past. But it specifically ties him to earthly ties as a human being. He has this ancestry. Then we read about in chapter 4, verse 15, that Jesus was vulnerable to temptation. He was tempted like you and I were. He, he often struggled with this idea that there's, there's some way that maybe Satan has more for him. Look at Chapter 4, verse 15. We don't have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in, and catch this phrase, every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. As a human being, Jesus Christ experienced temptation the same way we did. And in case you think somehow he didn't have the same type of temptation... The greatest example for the temptation of Christ was when he was fasting and Satan offered him bread to break his fast. And in doing so, don't think for one second that Jesus thought, I'm not even really that hungry. He desired that bread. He yearned and longed for his stomach to be full. He experienced temptation, not just with the bread, but in life, the way we experience temptation He certainly had this thought in his mind as a human being that that perhaps there could be desire in something else. But praise God, because Jesus was also fully God, he was unable to break, he was unable to break his perfect nature. He remained sinless. He is the perfect human being. And then finally, we, we see that Jesus Christ, like you and I, learned obedience. He learned obedience. Yes, he is fully God, but in his humanity, he was able to set aside some of his privileges and he grew in understanding. Look at Hebrews 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, that is the son of God himself, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Yes, Jesus never sinned. He was always obedient, but his understanding of obedience grew. He had to learn what it meant to be fully obedient to God. And you understand how this can happen if you have kids or grandkids yourself. Josiah is learning obedience. Sometimes well, sometimes not. I don't even know where he disappeared to. He is is learning how to obey 
Now, sometimes he messes it up, but there are sometimes he does things we don't want him to do, and it's not because he's sinning, it's because he has to learn obedience. So in our house, going down into our kitchen, there's about three or four steps that we have a gate to keep him from going down those steps, falling down those steps. And from the time I put the gate up, I, I warned Hannah that next to these steps, there's a banister. I said, he can fit through those bars. And if he ever figures that out, we're in trouble. Well, we've had this up for quite some time, and he has never figured it out. But I think he's seen the cat go through those bars recently. Because the other day, he's asking for my help in the living room, and I'm in the kitchen, and I've got the refrigerator door open. And I said, I'll be right in there, buddy. And I closed the door, and lo and behold, there's Josiah right there with the gate closed. I said, buddy, how did you get in here? I said, go back to the living room. So he walked up those steps, went right through the bars of the banister, and back into the living room, right? He hadn't learned that he's not allowed to do that yet. We had to teach him, no, don't put your body through those bars. I don't know if we'll have to block that or what we'll do. Hopefully, he'll just learn obedience. But you understand, I wasn't mad that he was there. He wasn't disobeying. He didn't do anything wrong. He had to learn what's right and what's wrong. Jesus Christ grew as a boy, and according to Hebrews 5.8, as he suffered, learned exactly what it meant to be obedient. I don't know how this works theologically. I just know what Scripture teaches us. So we know that Jesus Christ experienced humanity exactly as we did because he was fully human. So if you take notes in your bulletin, what, what do we know about the identity of Jesus? It is only Jesus, exclusively Jesus, who is both God and man. Christ alone. Christ and him alone are fully God and fully man. We know this because there is one God and only one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 tells us, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God and one only. So if Jesus is God, he has to be the only God. And so as we know him as God, we also realize that Scripture teaches us this difficult truth to understand that the one God reveals himself in three persons and in three ways as Father, Son, and Spirit. And what we find is that Jesus is even unique among the triune God. Right? They're all unique persons in the one Godness, in the one Godhead, because it's only Christ among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Only Christ who is fully human. God the Father is not a human. The Holy Spirit is not a human. Christ alone is fully God and fully human. We see God the Father and God the Spirit reveal themselves to us in physical ways from time to time in the Scriptures. So in the Old Testament, it is God the Father. Many believe it's God the Father who is speaking to Moses through a physical burning bush. He's physically there, but that is not the identity of God the Father. We don't worship a bush today. We don't sit there and have a ceremony commemorating the fact that God is a bush set on fire. His identity is not in that physical manifestation. Same way in the New Testament with the Spirit. As Jesus the Son is being baptized, there is a physical dove that comes down and rests on Christ. That is the Holy Spirit coming and resting. And so we see the Spirit shown to us as a dove, but but he is not, in his identity, a bird. He is spirit. Jesus and Jesus alone takes his identity as a human being. It is Christ who, for all of eternity, will have this physical body that we can touch and feel and see. He will have flesh 
and blood the way you and I have flesh and blood. We know this because after the resurrection, he appeared and the disciples were able to grab his hands and touch him. Christ alone, the the second person of that trinity, him alone is fully God and fully man. And so because of his unique identity, because it's only Christ who is fully God and fully man, he alone is capable of doing what he did on the cross. And so only Jesus can accomplish salvation. There's no one else in the entire cosmos qualified to save your sins and my sins than Jesus Christ. Going back 503 years during this Reformation time, there, there was debate about Christ alone. But it wasn't in the question, is Jesus the only way? The 16th century Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformers would have both said, yes, Jesus is exclusively the way to heaven. But the question came up, is Jesus enough? Or is it Jesus and? And that's where all the controversy came in. Is Jesus uniquely qualified to fully accomplish your salvation? Or is there more? And the answer emphatically through Scripture, what the Reformers were breaking away from a corrupt church in, is this. Because of his unique qualifications, being fully God and fully man, there is no other being who is able to accomplish the work that Christ accomplished. Let me put it this way. If Christ's work alone is not enough, then nothing can save you. If Christ is not enough, we are hopeless in our sins. After his work on earth was done, we read in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus sat down. Look at verse 3 that we read a moment ago. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. You know, to sit down is to rest. His work was done. It is finished and there's nothing else that has to be accomplished. He purifies sins and it's done. That doesn't mean that Jesus is no longer working. It doesn't mean that he's sitting and got his feet kicked up. His work is continuing to, to help us grow while our payment for our sins and our salvation is complete. Jesus is still working diligently because it says he continues to hold his creation and continues to, to grow your salvation in its place. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It tells us we need to look to Jesus, the founder of the one who saved us, and the perfecter, the one who continues, the founder and protector of our faith. It's for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the one who founds or begins our salvation. He's the one that perfects and sustains our salvation. He helps us grow in faith. Martin Luther, who is the the one who nailed those statements to the door was once just a Catholic monk who struggled with his own guilt, shame, and sin. He had so many questions for his Catholic priest. He pestered him so much about his, his fallenness. He would ask questions about sin, and then he went as far as to ask questions about sins in his sleep. So I had dreams that were impure or inappropriate. Do I have to pay penance for those sins. I can't control them. Am I in trouble for the things I, I dream about? 
And quite honestly, the priest got annoyed with him, is what it sounds like, and he sent him away to study theology for a time. He he was tired of asking questions. He said, "You you go to a monastery somewhere and you just spend time figuring it out. Well, that was a mistake because that's exactly what he did. He delved into the Word of God and started to learn and, and realize that it's, it's not just the fact that he sins, but it's that God's grace forgives his sins. And it's, it's grace and faith alone, and it's Christ alone. He came back, fired up, and he posts these, these statements on a, the door of his church in the entire world. That is not an understatement. The entire world changes. For Christians and non-Christians alike, this world is different because of the Protestant Reformation. And what was it that was so radical that shook the world? Well, Luther was asked about his teaching that was different now. The, the Catholic Church wanted to know why he was teaching things different from their teaching. And this is what he sent to them. I teach that people should put their trust in nothing but Jesus Christ alone. Not in their prayers, not in their merits, not in their own good deeds. It's not enough for us to know what Christ alone means. We have to put it into practice. How do you live out Christ alone? How do you rely on your salvation on Christ and Christ alone. There's really just one way I want to discuss as we wrap up on how to apply this. And if you take notes, write this phrase down. To live out Christ alone is to passionately pursue Jesus as all-sufficient in every walk of life. Let me say that again. Passionately pursue Jesus as all-sufficient in every walk of life of life. We tend to treat Jesus as all-sufficient in some areas of our life, but not all. It's like we, we look at him and we say, you know, thanks for saving me from my sins, but I'll take it from here. Thanks for the forgiveness, but now I've got it on cruise control. I mentioned a sermon by Tim Keller. He talks about a woman who, who taught at a camp when he was younger. And she, she made this illustration. She said, if you were to take the distance from the earth to the sun and reduce it to the thickness of a sheet of paper. So from the earth to the sun is 92 million miles. If you were to condense it and put it on scale as a, not the length or width of a sheet of paper, but the the thickness of a sheet of paper, okay? If you were to do that, then the distance from earth to the next closest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. This is how big the universe is. So, Earth to the sun, one sheet of paper. Earth to the next closest star, stack of paper, 70 feet high. That's higher than our ceiling right now, by the way. It's up more. So, So this is just the closest star to us, not to mention all the other ones. If you were to take the diameter of our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, and represent it on that same scale, you would have a stack of papers 310 miles high. This is the vastness of our galaxy. By the way, can can we remind ourselves for a second that our galaxy is one galaxy of what is believed to be billions of galaxies in our universe? And that there's even a theory out there now that our universe is just one of a multiplicity of universes? Think about the vastness of the creator of that. And then this is the question that that Bible teacher asked. Is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? 
Just really someone that you want to say, okay, God, I'll take your advice some. No, to trust in Christ alone is to say, God, you know what I don't know. I trust you with what I can't trust myself with. We make it Jesus plus. Jesus plus work ethic. If I work really hard and you become obsessed with your job and and progressing and moving ahead and you're never then satisfied with your income or your status, you have to continue to progress in your job. Or we make it Jesus plus education. We have to be the best student. We have to know more and constantly be gaining knowledge. You know the problem with trying to be the the perfect student and, and making our identity one of education and I'm going to stress you out if you do this a little bit here. If you lose a point of your perfect score, you can never regain that point back. Think about that for a second. You can have 100 at the beginning of the semester, but when you get one wrong, you are never going to have perfect score again. Don't give me extra credit. You can have extra credit. Sure, your percentage may be high, but there's still points you missed. You can't regain. You have no rest and satisfaction when it's Jesus and education. Maybe it's Jesus in status. I want to look like everyone else and be like everyone else, trying to impress other people. People have to perceive me a certain way and see me a certain way. I have to be good enough for others. But the problem is people's expectations change so rapidly. It's impossible to please. One minute, everyone is happy with with your status, and the next minute, you've changed nothing, but everyone is displeased. You cannot ever be satisfied. Maybe you find your identity in Jesus plus your parenting. I'm going to be the best parent that's ever lived. And you end up living vicariously through your children. Their success is your success. Their failures are your failures. And you're competing to try to keep your son or your daughter ahead of everybody else. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting because there are some remarkable children and, and while your kid is unique and wonderful, they're gifted in different ways, and you never feel satisfied because there's something your kid lacks. When you have Jesus plus anything, there is no rest. There is no accomplishment. There's always dissatisfaction. Work, education, status, parenting, anything you add to Christ. It's all valuable and all important, but it's distorted when it becomes your identity and your means for salvation. So passionately pursuing Jesus as all-sufficient means being content with the circumstances you have understanding that you don't need the job or the relationships or the status. You have enough. Everything that Christ has given you is enough. So rest. Breathe. God has work for you to do, but guess what? He has enough energy for you to do it. You don't have to pursue other ways of value. Christ is enough. So let me leave you with this. Christ doesn't need you to work on anything. He doesn't need you to read your Bible more. He doesn't need you to pray more. He doesn't need you to share your faith more. He doesn't need you to do any of that to accomplish his purpose and his will. However, Christ wants you to do those things. He wants you to have a relationship with him. He's not dependent on you. Your faithfulness or unfaithfulness will not thwart the ways of God. But think about his desire to partner with you, love you, and lead you. It's not work anymore. It's joy. It's sitting there saying, God, you want me to do these things because you care about me. You've done all the work. Now I just need to 
to bask in what you've done. That motivates us to read more, motivates us to pray more, it motivates us to share our faith more, because Christ has done the work already.